0: to the Navigating Dental Insurance Podcast, where we don't take from insurance companies. Here are your hosts, Mr. Jordan Comstock and Mr. Ben Tuine. This podcast is sponsored by
1: BoomCloud Dental Membership Software, www.boomcloudapps.com and Veritas Dental Resources, www.veritasdentalresources.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome everybody to another exciting episode of our Say No to PPOs podcast series. This is the Navigating Dental Insurance podcast. We use Say No to PPOs as the series to grab the attention of doctors. It seems to be a hot topic in the industry. Uh, This is in no way for us to boycott insurance, more so to provide good and great education on how to deal with the day-to-day problems. So today today we have uh, my co-host Jordan Comstock. How's it going, Jordan? Yo, Ben, doing good, man. Very good. Very well. And we <laughs> yeah. also have our honorary podcast host Tessina Barney. How's it how's it going Tessina? <laughs> Hi guys. I'm good. I awesome. I feel like we should give you one of those uh, you know, those graduation robes, uh with one of those uh, hats and tassels. You've graduated the podcast uh in terms of being a very frequent guest. And this is at uh at the, at request from a lot of the listeners they say man Tessina and uh, Angie are both wonderful and great we'd love to hear more about them
0: yes
1: so the uh, before we get into the content of the podcast today which we're going to be answering questions from our listeners um want to talk with uh, just chat with Tessina for a bit here Tessina has been involved with a lot of great things that are going to impact dentistry at the national level and the first one that I want to talk about Tessina if it's okay with you is yep. uh so you're working with Utah Dental United, which is a uh, an independent mm-hmm. practitioner independent uh practitioner association in mm-hmm. the state of Utah will eventually be um spread to other states. So tell us a little bit about your role there, what you, what you've been up to.
2: Yeah, um well I'm really excited that they um they brought me into this and that we've got some really good goals lined out. One, um, of course, the top goal, right, is negotiating some fee schedules to get better reimbursement rates for these doctors as a group as a whole. Um, So that's the the top thing that we've been tackling there. But they've got so many great plans for some other things, Um, one of them being me going out and doing some one-on-one training, as we do here on the podcast, and explaining how to do these appeals, how to use the insurance commissioner, how to bill the right way the first time. Some of these offices, then, um, as you know, we, we looked at these, their fees that they were billing were low, that the, so low that the insurance company didn't want to offer them a higher rate. So we kind of had to work Perfect. with these offices on getting them to bill the appropriate fees so that then they could request the appropriate fees.
1: <laughs> Isn't that really interesting? Awesome. Yeah. I mean, even for you, Jordan, I mean, if a doctor comes in and... They're at the 20th percentile of their fees, and then you're asking them to put <laughs> another <laughs> discount together for a membership program. It just doesn't really work. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it doesn't. It's surprising to me that fee schedules, the most obvious aspect of the business that needs to be right, is not right at over, I would say, more than 50% of the practices out there.
0: Uh, don't look at their fee schedules the way they should be. Anyway, so, continue, us So- I got oh, a question sorry, go about that. So yeah. do, you think, do you think, Ben, most practices out there, or what you've seen, is their, their, their fees are a lot lower than they, what, what they should be? Is that what Oh, what yeah. Absolutely. And they, they should look at that at a yearly... I mean, at least when I was managing you know, the lab, we looked at our pricing. Obviously, it's different than, than a, a dentist, but we'd look at it um, yearly and, and you know increase costs if, if they needed to be. But is that something that a practice should be doing on a yearly basis?
1: Yeah, uh, yearly or twice a year. I mean, you look at twice every under, other industry, the airline industry; those prices changes all those prices change all the time. True. Yeah. The oil industry is a huge contributing factor to, to controlling costs in so many different areas, yeah. uh, from cosmetics to you name it, um, fuel. Um, but dentistry and medicine is in the same category. I I firmly believe mm-hmm. that those fees should be assessed when the markets change, and the markets I change. Agree every single year heck the mortgage rates change daily and sometimes multiple times during the day but you don't have to do that in the dental office uh i, I think every year you should assess your fees according to market standards
0: yeah no i yeah. think that's a good tip
1: 100 yeah. percent. so tessana what else so so some highlights is she's working with uh udu utah dental united on negotiating fees in a legal way on behalf of the membership pool there yeah. and then mm-hmm. uh, what else you have going there
2: So, also, I've been working with a company called EPM. Um, They do online practice management training. And I have not actually heard of them before, but I guess they're kind of still new in in what they're creating here. Um, But they walked me through it. It's pretty cool stuff. Um, Basically, you have a training module that can be just on the computer at the office, and the staff can go on just 10 to 15 minutes when they have a little bit of downtime here and there. And take a little training course, and there's so many training courses, and for all the different areas, and you can have everybody cross trained, or you can have just them trained on the one thing that you want them to really focus on. Um, but there, it, it's a big course. It's not a 10 or 15 minutes course. It's like a two-hour course, but they can do it and pass off with quizzes, you know, within a 10 minute block. So it's realistic. We know, we don't have <laughs> two hours to sit down and do a course, but we could maybe get 10 minutes here or there. So I like that it's realistic, and they're really touching on um, the making sure that their training level is, is meeting the bar, making sure that they're training the need to know stuff, and that all of their paperwork has all the proper legal wording. Um, so I wrote a course for them or am working on a course, um, with them to do like an insurance coordinator training. Oh, very cool. Wouldn't that be great. Yeah, we (laughs) got into that and then he's like, wait a minute, shouldn't we go over this in the accountant manager's part? And I said, well, yeah. And we just start realizing how much of it all ties into each person in each role. It it all ties together. And so really everybody should be cross trained.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's all connected within the dental business. And that's really great. I wanted the listeners to know uh, your background. A lot of these things just transpired since the first time you uh, were invited on uh, the podcast, <clears throat> and I just wanted to demonstrate to the well, at least to show the listeners that Tessa is in high demand. <laughs> she, uh, you can hire her <laughs> awesome. directly, which many awesome, of you Tessna. have. I know, but she's uh, a wealth of knowledge, and we're, we're we're privileged to have her on the program again today. So we're going to ask uh, answer a lot of the top questions that were emailed to us from the guests. And we have a ton of them. So we're going to get started here. The it. first question is all about pre Ds, predeterminations or pre authorizing benefits or whatever you whatever you call that function within the dental practice. Uh, one of the listeners asked is pre authorization or pre authorizing benefits a waste of time? All PPOs don't guarantee coverage, even with a pre D. Uh, is this necessary or not? <laughs> Tessina, what's your take on that? <laughs>
2: Um, you know, so I'll kind of go a little bit back and forth on this. Ultimately, um, is it a waste of time? Yes.
1: <laughs> um, I agree.
2: They they don't they don't guarantee, and they'll tell you right there while they're doing the pre-op and on the paperwork of the pre-op. Oh, this is not a guarantee. You know, we can change our mind at any point in time, and we have that right. Um, and, and so it is kind of a waste of time, but I will tell you there is a time and a place for it. This is where I'm going to go back a little bit. So if you're presenting a really large cosmetic case to a patient, um, which most offices don't, or insurances don't do cosmetics, but if you bill it right, you can get it covered. But <laughs> um, if you're billing a large case or a case that a patient's really uneasy about, doing that pre-op gives the patient a sense of comfort. And I would still explain to them that it's not a guarantee. They don't have to own up to it. But also, when they do come back and try to deny, deny the claim that you did have a pre-D on, how easy is it to go back, give them their copy of the pre-op, and say, no, you said this would be covered. And more times than not, they'll reprocess it, and it'll be paid.
1: Yeah. There was a so, there was a, a news report here on uh, KSL, uh, our, our version of our local NBC channel, and uh, they 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 did this exact thing where it was a delta no it was a delta Humanos one of the two insurance carriers um patient <laughs> patient well the office the, the the office did a preauthorization, and it was a pretty big case and the insurance carrier came back and denied it well the patient took that to the insurance commissioner insurance commissioner sent it to the the insurance company and in this situation the insurance carrier has rights i mean they have it disclosed right there that on their website that, uh, this preauthorized, I mean, we can give you your pre D, but you know, it doesn't necessarily guarantee benefits and the insurance commissioner really forced the insurance carrier to say, Hey, if if you're going to give patients and doctors the expectation that, that this is a benefit that's Mm going to be covered during that phone call, you better cover it. So they did that. (laughs) The insurance company. Yeah. Going, going back to using the insurance commissioner effectively, I mean, mm-hmm. if you, I I firmly believe that you should always do pre-authorization especially for bigger cases. And here's another reason why. Almost every insurance carrier has a policy that says if you've pre-authorized benefits, you've didn't you've completed a pre-D, you've completed the treatment and you submitted that claim and you had a financial arrangement with the patient that said we did the, we did everything that we could within our power what we know on how to get this claim covered. And then you perform treatment and the insurance company comes back and says, this is denied. If you have a direct payment relationship with a patient that says, if the treatment is denied for whatever reason that we can't control, uh, you're still responsible for that fee. So we had a situation Mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania where an office was going back and forth with United Concordia because the representative was under the impression that if we deny it, if United Concordia denies a claim, the patient pays zero. And I I said, uh, no, there was a financial arrangement in place beforehand. Can you find the policy on your books, in your books that supports that? And they eventually did. They found a policy that clearly stated that if you follow all the right steps and doing a pre-D was one of them and the claim comes back denied, as long as there's a financial arrangement and disclosure to the patient that if insurance doesn't cover, the patient pays for it, you're not, the patient isn't off the hook. So a couple ways of getting that covered. Number one, you can get them you can petition the insurance commissioner, or mm-hmm. you can go after the patient directly. It's not going to make the patient happy, but it's not your fault as a dental
0: yeah.
1: office. Yeah. Anything to add there, Jordan, Tesina?
0: No, I'm I'm good. No, um,
1: I think we covered it. Yeah. Guys, yeah, yeah. I thought it was great. Like uh, if everybody got, was on the membership program, you'd have to
0: worry about all this crap.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, too. that is the That's truth stressful. right there. No pre op needed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Every time I hear you guys, you guys are the insurance specialists, right? I, 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 like hear all these you guys' conversations. I'm like, man, this is a big hassle all the time. Yeah. Your your yeah, life has- is great, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> Shame on you for not being involved at this level. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I got a next question here on our list. Um, so, how should a practice bill insurance when they hire an associate?
2: So, by law, they have to, each doctor working and providing treatment needs to be credentialed. Well, not by law they have to be credentialed, but you have to bill on the claim who the treating dentist was, and then you can also bill who the billing dentist is. They don't have to be credentialed, they can process out of network, but you have to list the treating dentist who he was. Otherwise, if you, what most offices are doing, Ben, you can tell me if you agree with Not they're bringing on associates, but then billing under just the billing doctor. And that can get you in a little bit of trouble.
1: (laughs) You know, that's right. Uh, Most offices uh, get in the habit of billing under the owner's tax ID, license number, And they don't really realize, I don't, you know, that's the industry standard. That's what goes on today. Um, There have been some recent lawsuits in uh, in some states where either an Mm -hmm. associate or a new owner would use the seller or the owner's tax ID information. And then the associate got into some malpractice trouble or complaint. When the regulators come in, they're going to want to see some things. If they see there that an owner is being used for billing and the owner is not on site. That's a violation. That's considered insurance fraud. Mm-hmm. Really? Now, I get the, it is. If, if the owners... Yeah. You can... Yep. So here's, here's the appropriate form. I mean, when you take yourself back to dental school or even in residency programs where uh, you perform the work as a student or a resident and the work is always billed out under the attending doctor or under the teacher's license number.
2: Now, that's mm-hmm.
1: totally appropriate and totally fine. And I mean, I, I I deal with a bunch of dental schools on issues like this. But when you carry that over to the dental practice, and if you as the owner are going to be appearing on the claims form, you have to have what's referred to as an attending doctor policy. Now I talked to our attorneys about this. I have to be very careful with what I say here and, and just throw a disclosure out there that this is this is from our attorneys. So you need to if, if you're going to apply this. You have to uh, speak with your own attorney on this advice because our attorneys will only represent us, but this yeah, in no I- way is a legal statement. But if if you're going to bill the owner's name f- for work that the associate does, number one, you have to have an attending doctor policy that specifically cites and states that the owner doctor is the doctor of record for all the patients. Number two, the owner doctor will always be there on site to monitor, supervise, coach, and provide guidance and approve any form of treatment being offered. And then um, number three, the associate or the doctor performing the work fully understands that they're providing the care under the supervision of the owner doctor or the attending doctor. Without, without those key components in place, you can get into really big trouble if you're billing as an associate using the license number of of another doctor, if that hmm. doctor's not there, and especially if there's no agreement in place. So like a good example, Ben, if
0: like a a dentist owns a practice and then maybe he's not working as a dentist, but he's as, as an owner and he hires associates. That's a, a good reason. That's a good example where they they can get in trouble, right? If, if the associate is billing, um, through the, the owner doctor.
1: Yeah. If the owner doctor, well, they, they'll, they'll get in trouble if the owner doctor is not there. If there's, yeah, no, that's, it, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. If may,
0: maybe he owns like multiple practices and he's not there all the time oh, or, yeah. or not practicing in that location. Yeah yeah,' okay, it's it's as
1: simple it's as simple as being able to demonstrate that uh, you were there to supervise and approve and and physically be able to examine patients whenever necessary. It's no different than when a doctor a young doctor comes out of school, applies uh, to get credentialed with insurance, doesn't have deA a DEA certificate because that takes some time. So that doctor cannot mm-hmm. prescribe medicine, but every hmm. insurance carrier is fine as long, as long as there's an owner doctor there or a supervising doctor that can examine the patient needs, charts, notes, whatever's needed to issue a prescription. As long as somebody else is there to help with that, that's licensed to issue prescriptions, the insurance carriers are fine with that. So it's just a function of being there physically. To, to demonstrate that you did uh, perform any examination on the patient that was necessary or any type of physical supervision to make sure that appropriate care and protocols were being followed and that's a key with insurance carriers they're fine with 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 that associate uh, doing work uh, if it's being billed out under the under the owner's name, but you have most of them will say you have to follow strict guidelines in terms of the the associate being no different than, an assistant in terms of assisting in care and not necessarily making mm-hmm. their own decisions. So, <clears throat> right. I hope I, I, hope and I just if you're didn't, not, yeah. Oh, go ahead.
2: Yeah. I, and if you're not doing that, then we just need to be following the type 2 NPI group, the, the group NPI number, and then the individual treating doctors and the billing doctor.
1: That's right. Yep. So, I guess I guess that brings up another topic, another question that we get asked all the time is, when do I need a type two NPI or an organizational NPI. And I guess the rule of thumb on that, the, the testing is what uh, more than one doctor. If it's two doctors or more insurance carriers, mm-hmm. carriers require uh, a type two NPI. Um, hmm. So if there's multiple doctors in the practice, you, you it's best, it's best mm-hmm. for you to be prepared with that type two NPI uh, in case the insurance carriers require that for billing. Very good. Anything else on that guys? Yeah.
0: I thought that was good. I learned a lot there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So here's another question. This one is uh, a frustrating one. I get this question asked all the time. What happens when military plans through this, in this case, through United Concordia pays less than the allowable and tells us to write off of the rest? What are our options? Is that even right or legal? Question mark. What do you think, Tessina? <laughs> so,
2: I mean, there's a kind of like a vast majority of, of things that could be going on here. So, um, you know, I'm tempted to want to dive into that and just find out. And this is what they need to be doing at the office is find out, do the work, do the legwork, find out why they're thinking they can do that. Um, and I'll just say sometimes they're doing it. On purpose like they're they're filing the claim incorrectly and if you call and say what's going on here why wasn't this billed under the correct fees you guys need to reprocess this but so like oh you called our bluff like you got us we'll reprocess it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the thing is is you're just getting the claim and then you're like oh it says I have to write it off so I have to write it off and I just file it away and you don't look at it you don't read into it you're not calling the insurance and questioning it why
1: <laughs> yeah yeah, always do your own research. do Do your own due diligence here. I've had this situation, exact situation, a couple of months ago with a client in Arizona. It was a a crown. Uh, the allowable on the crown was six uh, hundred and seventy something dollars, but United Concordia only paid four hundred and something um, dollars. And the interesting thing is that this this doctor didn't bring this to my attention until over a year after this claim was actually wow. paid. And so according to you know certain states, or I don't know if it's a federal law, but you have up to one year to collect or correct or challenge a claim, and they were beyond that. And so for this practice, they couldn't do anything about it. But uh, long story short, we ended up finding out that, that the way they built the claim wasn't according to United Concordia's process. Uh, so they processed the claim according to how they received it, not, and, and the practice had a different perception on what they were expecting in terms of compensation. So if you do your own research, but don't let those things go because you let those things go, insurance carriers will get in the habit of, uh, you know, just thinking that you're okay with not getting paid what you should be getting paid, you know.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They're not going to call you and say, hey, we think maybe you build this the wrong way. You know, let's get this corrected so you can get a better rate. They're not going to do that. They're hoping that you don't. Call. They're hoping that you don't catch the the glitch. All and most of the time, it's just an easy call that'll get right. it sorted out.
0: Yep, that's exactly. interesting. Okay, I got an, another question for you, Tessina. Um, are right. federal pl- are federal plans really exempt from non-covered service laws.
2: They are. They are exempt. There's a specific law. These are state laws. Is what you're talking about the state law for the non-covered services. And so federal plans are exempt from that, um, that's meaning the self-funded plans as well. So not just like Blue Cross and Shield Federal or the retired programs. Any self-funded plan is also going to be exempt from those non-covered services. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have some experience in that area too. What we typically do in situations like this, so that when you when an office challenges an insurance carrier like FEP through Blue Cross Blue Shield, they'll always come back and send you a copy of the federal law that says, actually mm-hmm. it says here in this federal law that we're exempt from, from state mandates regarding uh, healthcare services. Um, as oftentimes it's a good idea to have a direct financial relationship, uh, excuse me, a direct financial agreement with the patient um, for a, a lot of the, these things, non-covered non services. <laughs> uh, a good example is um, uh, sealants on, um, um, uh, gosh, what's the policy on on adults with sealants, Tessina? Um, on children, so sealants aren't
2: covered over the age of like fourteen, and they're usually on molars only.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. So sealants, uh, uh, sealants are often not covered for adults, and when you bill that to insurance, it's always going to be kicked back as denied. Um, but but if if it's a, a straight PPO, you can collect up to your standard office fee, your full office fee if you're in a state Mm -hmm. that has a non-covered service law. But we had situations where where Humana, excuse me, um, a federal plan would come back and say, no, this is governed under the federal laws. And they're right. We've run that through through the attorneys and they said they're correct. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that we can do there. But in situations where a patient wanted sealants and we would tell them, look, um, this is not covered by your insurance plan. You can choose to get this, but you you have to, Mm -hmm. the only way that we're going to do it for an appropriate reimbursement for our, to cover our costs is if you agree to not have this submitted to insurance. It's not covered anyway. If you're willing to pay for it out of pocket, that's great. So you have that thing that law called the High Tech Act, which which is a federal law. If a patient signs Mm -hmm. an insurance waiver and says, yes, I would love to get sealants, I agree to pay for them out of pocket, I understand it's not covered by my insurance, and I also agree to exempt the use of my insurance, which means that you don't have to bill the sealants to insurance, you -hmm. can have a direct payment relationship with the patient in that way if you want to do things like that. Veneers are another thing. There is just a a ton of other areas of treatment that doctors don't do anymore because insurance pays insufficiently. But in this case, uh, for non-covered services, you always have that option to to get the insurance Mm -hmm. that's me, to the patient to sign an an insurance waiver to uh, uh, give you legal permission to not submit it to insurance and therefore not be bound by the insurance rules and fees uh, uh, for that type of treatment. Anything else there, guys? Tessa? Um, Well, I just say,
2: with that letter, just so that the listeners know, this is something I use on a regular basis. And I don't have... A problem with patients' willingness to do this. Would you agree? They're they're not going wait. What I have to sign? What? No, I don't want to do it. They're usually like, oh yeah, no problem. I'll sign that. Let's do the work.
1: Exactly. It is all awesome. about the confidence and delivering it verbally to the patient and your presentation. And what I've learned, what I've learned in, in case presentation is when you bring, when you have a concern about it, um, you know what's that called the the law of attraction. You know when when you're yeah. concerned yeah. about it. All of a sudden, somebody's going to pick up those negative emotions, you know, and, and then they'll Absolutely. start to be mm-hmm. concerned about it. You just got to approach situations like this with a great deal of confidence. You have to have a great mm-hmm. trainer like Tessina, Jordan, or myself. That's not a pitch for you to come and hire us, but you just have to, be <laughs> very, you have to be very, very prepared and very confident in delivering things like that. Now, before we move on to the next question, I'm going to share one example. A client of mine in Tacoma, Washington. He, he listened to this part of our coaching training with him, and he said, "Wow, I can tr- I, I can then start exactly with sealants. He's like, i'm gonna I'm gonna just do the premolars and start start from there." They started presenting this to adult patients and adult, every single adult patient agreed to pay the extra four hundred dollars out of pocket, and that was their full fee uh, for the sealants. I mean, you can you can go more. sealants can cost you two thousand or more if you do every single tooth but they just decided to start small. Applying that one concept and offering something that was huge in value in terms of giving patients some form of therapy or prevention against cavities that made total sense to the patient, this added almost $200,000 of extra revenue for the practice, spending, what, maybe another minute or two explaining to the patients the the benefits of having sealants. so anyway, if if any yeah. of you are interested in any of those different areas, I mean, there's a number of areas that you can apply them. But just know that if you if you if there is a non-covered service law or not, you still have the High Tech Act that protects you in terms of getting patients to agree to an insurance waiver. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Moving on. So we have uh, this other question here. So federal plans. up. Okay. So build-ups. <clears throat> so the question is, I don't bill build-ups because they are never covered by insurance anyway. Is that right or wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we know how I one. feel about this. <laughs> no, go yeah. ahead. You go ahead first. <laughs>
2: um, so we've kind of touched on this before. Um, and this is not just happening with build-ups. This happens with various, what some people are considering small charges but they add up really fast. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um,
2: But if you do a build up and, sorry. You're fine. Um, So if you do a build up, um, then yes, definitely bill it out on the initial claim in the remarks, you need to state that the build up was necessary for crown retention. In doing this, then you most likely will get it covered the first time around if it comes back denied, appeal it again, explaining that it, you know, uh, and you can put in there like the percentage of tooth loss. My doctor loves to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then, um, and for this reason, again, the, the buildup was required for crown retention. ADA states it's a separate code, so you can't consider it, you know, in the fee with the crown. And then I usually like to say, I expect this to be reprocessed immediately for payment or I'll file a complaint with the insurance commissioner. And then you get it paid within a week or nice. two.
0: Yeah. Nice, nice.
1: <laughs> I, like, yeah. I like testing those threats, you know. If, if, if you don't pay this, I'm gonna slit your throat kind of deal.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you know what, it's not a threat. It's not a threat, it's a promise.
0: It I, is, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, I, that's well, way to look at
2: it. it it's, it's not just tongue in cheek, I'm not just saying, hey, you know, this is not a threat, this is, I will hold down to it, I will file that complaint. And and then they will be
0: sorry. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes, they will.
1: <laughs> yeah. Very- t- I I 100% agree with that assessment. The other thing that I'll add, just my two cents here, is when you don't bill the buildups, you're lowering their percentage of utilization on buildups for that area. So insurance carriers mm-hmm. look at the percentage of buildups, and um, many doctors don't submit them. So so naturally, insurance carriers think, well, the buildups aren't required. And if you're billing buildups even 20% of the time in areas where most doctors aren't, they're going to think you're overbilling. Um, mm-hmm. So they use that as statistics. But the other thing that you want to keep in mind is that even though insurance carriers use things like that as statistics, that doesn't necessarily mean that the patient doesn't need a buildup. So challenge those things. Another example is a client in, another client in Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, said that um, uh, they've been coached by... Um, people such as uh, Dr. Gordon Christensen, that their hygiene department for perio, people in perio maintenance or anything in that perio category, that at least 30% of their patients should be in that, well, that, the practice, 30% of the practice should be uh, in that perio category. And they were at 22%. Once they reached 23%, the insurance carrier came back and said, you're over perio, you're over-diagnosing perio. And this office uh, challenged the insurance carrier, sent them a letter and says, you realize that the CDC says that over half of the adult patients have gum disease and went through all these statistics that the uh, uh, periodontal organization uh, association agrees with me that the percentage should be higher. This attorney, excuse me, the insurance carrier called back with their attorney and basically employed (laughs) a power play and says that if you don't drop this, we're going to sue you.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, my Um, gosh.
1: Ridiculous. So I like I know, I know. I advised him. I said, re- try to re- legally record that conversation if you can. Yeah. But take notes, take the name of that attorney and report them to the insurance commissioner and even the attorney yeah. general for bullying. I mean that yep. is completely unethical for for somebody to call and engage. What they, in the legal world they call it a power play. Yeah. And a power play is essentially a non-court ordered attempt to cease and desist to force somebody to agree to a cease and desist. And you really don't have to listen to them. I mean, I can mm-hmm. count. I mean, I can't count anymore how many lawsuits that I've received over the years um, from various different insurance carriers, and there were all power plays. None of them came from a judge. So my the attorneys and you know, that's why I have attorneys on retainer. You sue me and my gatekeepers are the attorneys and they always say, they always say, ignore this. We'll take care of it. Don't worry. Um, so, so just put yourself in, in, in those shoes there that you don't have to give in to the power plays and most certainly do what Tesla does and hold their feet to the fire. Give them a promise, give them a threat, a really big threat in the form of a promise that you're going to, you're going to report them. And, uh, uh, testing as a, an attestment that that's true and we have several clients that will tell you that testing this process is 100% effective
0: alright awesome. uh, next question what's next? I got it let's see okay next question is I'm looking to drop PPO plans and and listen to the podcast with Bill Rossi I can't afford a professional consultant at the time, but really want to get out of these freaking PPOs. I, I added that. <laughs> <laughs> what what advice do you have in dropping plans? What's the first step?
2: Yeah, um, well, this is um, you know treading some dangerous waters here a little <laughs> bit, right, Ben? When you oh, <laughs> yeah.
1: agree? Oh yeah, I I think number one. Um, if you don't have that great a cash flow and you want to drop PPO plans, you might want to reassess the business. I, I recommend perhaps I contacting agree. Dental Intel to do a, a complimentary practice snapshot because yes, to me, job. yeah, it doesn't seem like dropping PPO is going to help you. And I, Tessin, do you have experience with practices that drop PPO's without having appropriate training?
0: And strategy.
2: Right? Yeah, I
1: mean,
2: yeah. The- There's kind of a myth, right? A little bit with this saying that the reason that, I mean, pinning all your reasoning on why your practice is suffering is because you're with these PPO's. That can't be the only reason that's, that's going to be a myth right there. That's, Yep. That's not the real problem. So you pull those PPOs, and in doing so, you, you might also be losing a lot of patience. You don't have the proper systems in place, the proper training in place to carry that over in a healthy way that will grow your practice. Instead, it, it might cause the end of your practice.
1: That's right. Yeah. Uh, I'll throw an example. I, actually, I had um, a client uh, early in my career. I had a client in um, the Biltmore area of Phoenix, Arizona. And they decided to drop MetLife without even consulting me. They just wow. felt they that just it did would be it. a great idea. Yeah, so they dropped MetLife, and um, about a month or two later, they they came back to me freaking out, saying, "Ben, we were are losing every single last one of our United uh, MetLife patients." And I went to their office and I looked at their 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 numbers, and yeah, they were down big time revenue, and they didn't have a process they just felt that this write-off is so low but we're just going to drop them just because because we hate them we don't like them at all we don't (laughs) like the payment we don't like dealing with them
0: no strategy whatsoever
1: exactly so here's the strategy from metlife what metlife did is once they received that termination letter they they wrote letters to every single patient for the last five years that received uh, that that they paid a claim on for that tax id they sent letters to them that listed 20 other practices within a half a mile radius. That oh. was an in-network participating provider with MetLife. So the patients didn't even come back. They canceled their appointments and they went to that other practice because they were told that they could no longer go and see this doctor. This was over $300,000 worth of revenue for this practice. And that was, wow. more, that was more than what the doctor took home for personal, you know, his personal pay. Uh, so to prevent that from happening, I told them, look, you guys got to re-up with United Concordia to stop the bleeding because you, you don't have, uh, you, you, the way you approached it was just incorrect. And you learned, you learned the hard way that you have to have a strategy in place to combat what the insurance carrier strategy is. When anybody goes out of network, they're going to, they're going to go after your patients and they're going to try to steer them to another in-network provider. So, mm-hmm. so for that doctor that asked, asked that question, I agree with Tess Look look deeper into your numbers. Contact Dental Intel. Tell them that I referred you or, or any of us, Tessna, Jordan, or myself, and ask for a free practice snapshot. They'll go through the numbers, and, and they're smart enough at Dental Intel to know exactly what the problems are from a numbers perspective and give you better advice. And then uh, when you get that, just give tessina a call. She'll help you from there, right, Tessna?
2: Yes, definitely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, what's the next question? We got one more question. Uh, for the interest of time, we'll just take one more. So the last question here is purchasing a dental office that is 100% PPO practice. When should I start uh, get started on the credentialing process, or should I even join the same plans that the seller participates with?
0: Hmm, interesting.
2: Yeah, that is a really interesting question. So let me understand. They're purchasing um, a dental office, that is with the PPO plans, and they're going to be a dentist
1: themselves. Yep, so they're going to take over as a new owner. Okay. The practice is one hundred percent PPO, and the, the uh, owner doctor, the seller doctor, does participate with every single PPO plan that that's out there. So this wow. doctor just wants to okay. know what to do. Yeah,
2: um, I, I'll I'll give my just my personal opinion here, and then uh, maybe Ben can. <laughs> um, but I would say do the credentialing right now I mean that takes a long process I would start that as to whether or not joining the PPO's um, I would at first these patients that he's taking over don't know him they haven't built a relationship with him yep. he's a complete stranger so get with those PPO's you can drop them later get with the PPO's get credentialed build a relationship with these people Start educating your patients with your trained staff, and then start dropping out the ones that are unacceptable.
1: Wow, you gave the exact same answer that I was going to give. You know, sometimes on these these, these phone calls, I um, I was hoping to have something here that you and I disagreed on, so that we can go back and forth (laughs) again. (laughs) But but then you're you're absolutely right. The most important thing in the transition is retaining as much as a value that as you can from the. Whatever you're purchasing, I know you might be purchasing at a, at a discounted rate, but you still want to retain the value. And then what what I often see is an owner would come in, a new owner would come in, and the the team would not know about the transition until the day of the sell. And then the mm-hmm. whole the new owner comes in is completely out of network, hasn't even notified any insurance carrier. Then they start billing insurance, and then they don't get any money paid from the insurance. The insurance is saying, "Well, we don't recognize this doctor." And we don't recognize this tax ID. So here's a bunch of paperwork that you need to fill out. So you, you have you have this frustrating process where claims are being processed out of network. Patients are being told by their insurance carrier that they owe more than they actually than they used to owe, or whatever you quoted them under in-network terms. So you have to prepare for that. You have to have a strategy in place to and then do what Tessina says, get credential ASAP with these plans, all of the plans that the seller takes. And then you can start to pare back maybe six months to a year after you've, you've, you've been introduced to that patient base. Now, a lot of people disagree mm-hmm. with that, that, that advice. <clears throat> and what I'll tell you is those that disagree with that advice, I think they have some valid points too, because what the other approach is, let's go in and take the top plans, the, p- the plans that re- represent most of the patients, and then let's spend uh, six to 20 grand in marketing to get n- more new mm-hmm. patients. You know, that approach works well if you have the working capital. But I can, but most of, I'd say 95% of the people that I work with, the banks don't give them the working capital and the dentists aren't willing to reach into their savings account and may not have the money there to mm-hmm. spend on marketing. So the quickest way to retain the value of the practice is just to mirror the PPO structure of uh, the seller and then do what Tessina says. You can then dro- start dropping them, but after you've been introduced to those patients or at least the majority of them. Um Yeah. <clears throat> You're going to
2: want this transition to be really smooth and not just for your patients, but for the staff as well. Because if the staff is feeling frustrated and they're feeling uncomfortable, that's going to, that's going to, you know, yeah. I mean, the patients can see that your staff might leave because they're frustrated or they're going to stay because they don't want to find another job. But then patients come in, they're like, yeah, I don't know what's going on. This new guy came in and uh, so the (laughs) patients can see that the staff doesn't trust the new guy. And I mean, you're just, it, it could be a big mess. I would get in and start making everything set up so it could go so smooth and everybody feels so comfortable. And and then you can make your changes once everybody's on board with you being in
1: charge. I agree. Well, thank you, Tessina. Um, yes, you know, we're, Tessina. we're ending this podcast on May 17, 2017, and there's snow outside my window. <laughs> We're crazy! Yeah, what the
0: heck, man! Disappointing! It's, so, it's messed up here. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, no. I'm, mov- I'm moving back to Arizona. That's, that's it. I'm just, I'm done with this winter. We gotta go. Oh, on a but then, it,
0: <laughs> then it gets too hot there in Arizona. Like, I don't care at this point. I want my garden in. I want air. Yeah, I want me sun. Too. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Sun. Yeah. I do like, I like the warmth. Like, I think I can handle Arizona. But last time I was there, I felt like I would melt in my car. It was so hot. Yeah. <laughs> Well, folks, uh, if you have questions
1: for us that you want to for us to answer on any future episodes, just send us an email. We're going to post all of our contact information in the show notes, uh, including Tessina's uh, email and, and phone number if you have a question for her directly. But uh, Jordan, Tessina, thank you so much for being on the program today. You Anytime. both stay warm yeah. out there and uh, both have it. a great day. <laughs> all right. See you back. Hey. Bye bye. Thanks again for tuning in. Hey, if you have any friends who want to learn more about the stuff that we talk about, please let them know that we exist. Referring your friends to, say no to PPOs.com is the best way you can show your support for us. However, if you don't like the podcast, we'll give you a full refund. Also, let us know if you want to hear anything new or something that we haven't covered just yet. Try to keep the topics to PPOs as we, uh, that's our area of expertise and things that we know the best. Just email me at help at VeritasDentalResources.com Veritas is spelled V as in Victor E-R-I-T-A-S VeritasDentalResources.com I I will post that on the show notes so if you're driving please don't uh, take your hands or eyes off the road Uh, thanks again for all your support and we wish you the best of success signing off from Salt Lake City, Utah this is Ben Tuine on behalf of my good colleague Jordan Comstock